It is time for Legally Speaking here on CFAX 1070, joined as always by barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Good morning, Michael Mulligan. Good morning. Uh, great to be here. Lots on the agenda today. Uh, no doubt about that. Uh, so uh, the first thing on the agenda, I think, is a uh, really interesting uh, app or petition that was filed in the B.C. Supreme Court uh, just yesterday uh, by... Uh, father, the two fathers uh, of uh, who have uh, young children uh, who would be scheduled to return to school, um, and uh, the petition that they've brought uh, is seeking uh, to prevent uh, the uh, schools from reopening as the government has currently uh, announced, uh, and they are uh, seeking a number of uh, potential remedies uh, on the basis that uh, the current. Uh, plans to reopen schools uh, don't uh, adequately ensure the protection of children, their families, or the uh, community more broadly. The uh, petition uh, and the uh, notice of application which seeks the injunction to stop the reopening of schools as currently uh, proposed uh, is scheduled to be heard on the week of September the 14th, um, uh, and it will be very interesting to watch how this plays out. Um, I've had an opportunity to review uh, the uh, the notice uh, of application and yes. the petition that was filed, uh, and both are uh, obviously very carefully considered uh, and detailed uh, applications. Uh, the, these are not uh, something which uh, somebody has sort of filled out on the back of an envelope. Um, the uh, legal basis, there are several for the uh, uh, application uh, that uh, the fathers are making on behalf of their children and their families uh, is premised uh, on one level on the uh, the Provincial Public Health Act. And the Public Health Act in Section 15 says this, a person must not willingly cause a health hazard or act in a manner that the person knows or ought to know will cause a health hazard. <laughs> uh, and the uh, petition um, points out and details uh, various elements of the uh, provincial government's uh, current uh, plan uh, to permit children to go back to school. Um, and uh, the petition points out um, various elements of that, which the fathers say are uh, missing. Uh, and uh, without them, the fathers allege uh, the province would be causing a health hazard. Um, those various uh, elements include things like uh, not requiring uh, adequate uh, physical distancing at schools, uh, not having class sizes and density targets uh, at a size which would permit physical distancing, not requiring masks or face shields, uh, not providing virtual learning opportunities for people. Uh, the two fathers, interestingly, uh, both of the, the children have um, health uh, conditions, uh, which would make them uh, at greater risk if they were to contract uh, COVID-19. Um, and the family members of both of the children also have health conditions. And it's interesting because, of course, the, uh, the, the risk created is on one level to the children, but it's also to uh, the families of the children. Um, and one of the interesting points that's made in the, uh, the petition and the notice of application um, is that um, the, the children have siblings, which is not unusual. Uh -huh. um, and so the fathers point out that uh, when you take a proposed um, size of a class or a cohort, 
really you need to multiply that by the number of siblings because that's really now going to be the size of the pool of people who are interacting. Yes. Um, and so that's pointed out there. Um, the um, application, in addition to uh, being brought on the basis of the Public Health Act and this uh, alleged um, uh, causing of a health hazard by the current plan, um, also um, uh, seeks a remedy on the basis that the uh, proposal is contrary to Section 7 of the uh, Canadian Charter on the basis that it interferes with the uh, uh, students and families' right to be um, uh, secure yes. uh, in terms of uh, life and security of the person. Yes. Um, so it's constitutional litigation uh, as well as uh, relying on the Health Act. Um, the number of remedies they're seeking in the alternative include uh, either stopping the schools from opening altogether. Yeah. So if they are able to obtain an interim injunction in that regard, schools would cease operation uh, at that point if they are successful in their application. Uh, in the alternative, uh, they are um, seeking um, uh, a uh, injunction which would prevent the schools from opening unless those various things are implemented, physical distancing, spacing, yeah. um, hmm. masks, uh, uh, various other uh, elements. And in reviewing the, the application and the petition, it also caused me to go and have a look at uh, what the government has done in terms of the uh, public health orders that would permit the schools to reopen. Yes. And what's occurred in that respect is that uh, we have a number of things which are orders that are made under the Public Health Act. Um, and when there is an order made under the Public Health Act, it's sort of what it sounds like. It's a requirement, not a, a kind suggestion. It's you must do these various things. Um, and we have in place in the province uh, currently uh, an ordering which applies to an order that applies to gatherings and events. And that order sets out the uh, justification for the order, talking about things like uh, uh, how uh, COVID-19 uh, or SARS-CoV-2 can spread through droplets in the air, yes. left on surfaces. Uh, it speaks about things like uh, the gathering together of people indoors or outdoors for the purpose of attending an event can promote the transmission of SARS-CoV-2 and increase the number of people who develop COVID-19. And then this is what they've done. The, the order defines what an event is, um, and the, an event described in the order is incredibly broad. It's everything one could possibly imagine, uh, parties, uh, celebrations of life, uh, musicals, theatrical or dancer entertainment performances, disc jockey performances, uh, comic acts, strip dancing, art shows, magic shows, puppet shows, fashion shows, <laughs> book signings, readings, receptions, displays, movies, films, meeting conferences, lectures, talks, Educational presentations, and they've got this, bracket, except in a school or post-secondary institution, close bracket. Wait, wait, it's excluded? It's excluded. Huh. So, what they, so what they've done is they've set out the danger, the disease, the danger, how it spreads, uh, and then they've defined an event as everything you can imagine. It goes on quizzes, games, rallies, festivals, everything, but they exempt, exempt, except in a school or post-secondary institution. Wow. Uh, and so then the order goes on to require various things in accordance with the risks that the order uh, describes. Uh, and it requires things like uh, there must be two meters from one another for people that are at an event, uh, unless they're in the same party. There, if there are tables, there must be no more than six patrons at them. The chairs, they must be six meters. They must be 
uh, two meters between the chairs at different tables. There must be sufficient space to permit patrons to maintain a distance of two meters from one another. In any place, you may not have more than 50 people. There are all of these requirements which are not met uh, by the current plan for schools to reopen. And so the only way the schools are able to legally reopen in the fashion currently proposed is by exempting them, which is what they've done. And so instead of the order, which would otherwise deem the current school plan to be um, contrary to the uh, this public health order. Instead, what they uh, has been issued is this um, guidance for schools to be reopened. Uh, and so they're all sort of helpful suggestions, none of which are binding on schools because of that exemption I've just mentioned. And because they're binding, no court can rule on whether they're being adhered to because they need not be adhered to. Correct. Otherwise, huh. that petition would be saying, hey, you're breaching the public health order, yeah. <laughs> right? And so that's why it doesn't say that. Huh. Uh, and interestingly, in the, the one with what they have in its place, this sort of suggestion, the guidelines, it is premised on this. It says, there is limited evidence uh, of confirmed transmission within school settings. And the interesting element of that, of course, is that we're now seeing internationally the result of schools reopening in various places. Yes. Uh, in, in Germany, uh, Israel, uh, the United States, the United Kingdom. And in all of those places, uh, what is in fact being observed um, are outbreaks that are occurring shortly after schools have opened. Like Berlin just opened up their schools, and after yes. two weeks, 41 of them had outbreaks. Yeah. And so the whole premise of this thing is this proposition that there's limited evidence of confirmed transmission in a school setting. That may be true in B.C., because, of course, last school year yeah. they had remote learning and all of this. Uh, but... Um, that doesn't seem to accord with international experience, at least. And so I think we're going to need to watch very, very carefully um, what happens with this uh, petition uh, and this application that's going to be heard on uh, the week of September 14th. Um, And that, uh, I think, is going to cast some significant doubt on whether schools are, in fact, going to be able to proceed in the way that the provincial government is currently um, suggesting that they should. Uh, and so I think parents need to be aware of that um, and should um, look at that and consider it carefully uh, because, well, of course, I don't know what the outcome of that application is going to be. Indeed. Uh, there's c- clearly uh, sort of a, a very well, at least considered and articulated uh, application here. As I said, this does not appear to be some uh, quickie off the corner of somebody's desk. Um, right? You've got this application that runs on some... Uh, I counted up here, 25 pages uh, detailing all of the background and the nature of these orders and all of these various arguments, constitutional and otherwise. Uh, And so um, uh, some judge is going to need to sort that out, uh, and uh, that's when it's scheduled to be heard. So I I think uh, parents need to be aware of that and uh, carefully follow it, because uh, I think it, it, it does cause some... Uh, real uh, doubt about whether what's currently proposed is likely to be permitted. Absolutely. Let's take a quick break. We'll continue with Legally Speaking in just a moment. Michael Mulligan after this. And this is Legally Speaking on CFAX 1070. We continue our conversation with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. What's next on the agenda, Michael? I'm reading here the COVID-19 Related Measures Act, rather innocuously named piece of legislation. But what does it do? 
Sure, that, that sounds like the sort of thing one might want to have in times of COVID-19. You might want to have some related measures. <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> only appropriate related measures, though, surely. Indeed. So this piece of legislation uh, was passed recently. Um, it came into force on regulation years of July 10th, so it's, uh, it's new. Um, and uh, the section that I wanted to draw to people's attention, and, and it relates to the last topic concerning the opening of schools and the uh, exempting schools from the, um, the Public Health Act order that would keep other uh, gatherings of that sort uh, safe, um, is that uh, this act, that is to say the, uh, the COVID-19 Related Measures Act, in Section 5, uh, acts to uh, stop you from uh, being able to sue successfully um, if you wind up getting infected as a result of a number of things which are described as prescribed damages or prescribed acts or omissions. Uh, and so you need to uh, go a little bit further to figure out what, what exactly are they talking about here when they say that there can be no legal proceeding for prescribed damages or any prescribed act or omission. And so what you need to go to is you need to go to what are called the, sort of the regulations under that uh, act to see what have they prescribed. Um, and they've prescribed uh, these things. Yes. You will be unable to sue for damages resulting directly or indirectly from an individual being or likely being infected with or exposed to SARS-CoV-2. Uh, those are prescribed damages. So... Uh, if uh, your child goes to school, gets infected with COVID-19, comes mm -hmm. home and uh, passes away or a family member passes away as a result of that, mm -hmm. um, you would be unable to sue because those damages would be prescribed damages. They, they've also uh, prescribed various acts, and those acts would include, uh, in, it's defined in this way, uh, an uh, activity that has the purpose of benefiting the community or any aspect of the community. And then sub two is there, the advancement of education or religion. There it is. And so what that means is that um, if a family member or a child um, contracts COVID-19 uh, going to school and causes some loss, like let's say the um, uh, child comes home, infects the uh, a uh, child's mother, who was the person who worked and supported the family, and the mother passes away, um, it would mean that you would have no cause of action uh, on the basis that uh, the government or the school were negligent um, because the activity uh, is a prescribed activity, and the uh, damages are a prescribed uh, type of damages. And so it would mean that uh, if a person or family suffered um, that kind of an economic loss, um, as a result of the uh, negligence uh, of uh, uh, teacher or principal or school board or the provincial government or whoever else might uh, make a, a decision that would put somebody in jeopardy, um, you would have uh, no cause of action and would be unable to receive compensation for that. Wow. The Act, I should say, does provide an exemption for what's called gross negligence. Yeah, what does that mean? That's a term of art, isn't it? Like it has a special yeah. meaning? It would mean this. It would mean it would be things like sort of a marked or flagrant departure from what sort of the standard of care of a reasonably prudent person would be. Okay. I mean, when you talk about negligence from a legal perspective, what you're talking about really is carelessness, right? Okay. Uh, and the way that that's ordinarily articulated would be sort of the standard of care that a reasonably prudent person would take, 
right? Okay. Uh, and gross negligence would be that. It would be sort of a marked or flagrant departure, right? I suppose. Okay. So let's say you said, that person has COVID-19, <laughs> right? And you say, yes, I appreciate that. You're telling me to go into the closet with that person with COVID-19? Yes, I'm telling you to do that. Okay. <laughs> right? Easily. Okay. So marked departure from a standard of care <laughs> that a reasonably prudent person would observe. Okay. Correct. But basically, they passed legislation which would insulate uh, individuals, including uh, those that I've indicated, people that are uh, engaged in activity for the advancement of education or religion. It also interestingly exempts any activity, including a business, that's carried on for direct or indirect gain or profit. Huh. And so that would mean, for example, let's say uh, um, a restaurant or some business was careless and it caused you to become infected. Like they didn't, I don't know, uh, ask their staff members to wear masks. Yeah you know, carefully, uh, you know, allowed somebody to come to work with a fever and a cough and just said, oh, just go for it, right? We're short one line cook or something. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe that gets to the level of gross negligence, but I wouldn't want to hang my hat on it. No. Um, the idea is that those things would be exempted from liability, and so you wouldn't be able to get any compensation if you suffered a, uh, a loss or loss of life uh, as a result of somebody being negligent uh, and uh, causing you to get uh, COVID. Well, at least the uh, the civil justice system won't be overwhelmed with a hailstorm of lawsuits when this starts. It sounds like a eye was turned to the prospect of litigation when these regulations and statutes were drafted. Yeah, I mean, I guess here's the other here's the concern about that, right? Because of course, um, having those civil remedies available to people are part of what encouraged people to act in a reasonable, safe, and prudent fashion, yes. right? Yeah. Um, unless, unless and until, I suppose, we get uh, no-fault insurance, for example. One of the reasons why you might want to drive carefully in your car is if you don't, you could get sued, yes. right? Uh, or anything else you do in your life, you want to engage in a you know, cautious uh, pursuit of whatever you're doing so that you don't expose yourself to civil liability. Yes. And when you say to somebody, that's no longer the case, um, the, the worry is that it might promote... Uh, unsafe uh, behavior. Uh, and, you know, we've seen uh, reported uh, examples of people who are engaged in behavior that appears to be quite unsafe, yes. right? Uh, you know, parties, people being ticketed for doing those things. One of the things that might be a constraint on people's behavior uh, would be the possibility that you'd be financially responsible uh, if you engage in careless behavior and you cause somebody to become uh, sick or die. Um, and if we remove that, you remove one of the things that would encourage people to behave in a cautious way. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. We have four minutes and four seconds remaining, and I note an unsuccessful claim for wrongful dismissal after being fired for failing to wear a bump cap at work still on the agenda. Yeah, I think we can cover that in that time, and I think it has some relation to other things we just talked about. The particular case was a person who worked uh, doing manufacturing work for a number of years, uh, and her employer implemented a policy that employees wear a bump cap, like a soft cap, so they don't hurt themselves if they hit their head on machinery, presumably. Okay. And the particular employee initially wore the thing, but then refused to keep wearing it, claiming that it gave her migraines. Uh, but then after multiple requests and letters and so on, she just wouldn't go and get any medical opinion to substantiate that claim. And she just wouldn't put the hat on. Uh, and eventually, after a period of time, her employer fired her, right, for not wearing the safety equipment. Yeah. She sued unsuccessfully. And the judge found that, no, the employer can require an employee to wear safety equipment. They were making legitimate inquiries. If she had a medical condition that needed to be accommodated, she simply wouldn't substantiate that. And so uh, she could be fired and was due no compensation and no notice for that. 
Um, and the lesson there, I think, for people to take away is essentially you, you need to wear safety equipment your employer is asking you to wear. Yes. And again, in the age of COVID, uh, the, the natural piece of equipment that might be controversial would be, please put a mask on, right? Yeah. Uh, and if you're somebody who says, I won't do that, and you won't provide some, uh, you know, good evidence as to why, you know, you're unable to do that, you may find yourself in the same position that this person did. So wear the safety equipment, uh, lest you... Uh, uh, wind up uh, being uh, dismissed from your job. Well, and we can imagine the alternate scenario where the employer turns a blind eye and allows this person to engage in their work without wearing a bump cap. Something goes wrong, they hit their head, they're injured. Who's liable for that? Insurance isn't going to cover that. At least I would not expect them to do so without a fight. So the employer really had no choice. Yeah, I guess in the case of the masks, the employer can take some solace in the COVID-19 Related Measures Act. <laughs> like, no problem. I'm only negligent in my failure to ask my employees to put a mask on. I, I'm good to go. <laughs> Quick, somebody describe what a marked departure means again. This is important. Oh, oh dear. Michael Mulligan, we always appreciate the benefit of your knowledge and insight helping us understand these issues. Thank you, as always. We've got about uh, 90 seconds left on the clock today. Anything else you want to leave with us? No, I think the uh, the broad takeaway from all of these things is that we all need to do our best to stay safe, ensure that we're not putting other people uh, in jeopardy. Um, and uh, I think we're going to be in for some, I think, very interesting legal times over the next few weeks um, as the courts are required to struggle with things like uh, whether the schools can be reopened in the way that's proposed. Um, I also think it's likely we're going to see litigation in that regard possibly from teachers who feel that they're in some jeopardy. Mm. And we, we may even see things like uh, human rights uh, uh, complaints coming of it. So I think we're going to end for some very interesting uh, legal times as well as uh, medical health times over the next uh, few weeks as we uh, uh, see how the uh, back-to-work or back-to-school plan uh, actually unfolds. Well, indeed, the courts exist at times as the steady hand to ensure that legislators follow their own rules, among others. So I'm glad that we have that, that backstop there. No, and I can say this, the the, uh, the Supreme Court is, uh, is functioning in person again. Um, I just spent three days in the uh, Supreme Court up in uh, Duncan, uh, uh, and uh, there are quite a few safety measures in place, plexiglass and people wearing masks and checking for symptoms coming into the courthouse. But good. it's good to see that the uh, courts are taking those precautions and um, maybe not at full capacity, but uh, we're doing our very best to uh, move cases along, uh, and so that's good to see. Very well. Michael Mulligan, thank you so much as always. We'll talk again soon. Thank you so much for having me. Have a All great right. day. Have a great week. Bye now.